Coming home, part one. This is from Philemon, verses one to seven. Because it's only a very 25 verses, there are no chapters, so we'll be looking from verses one to seven this morning. So today we are beginning a short sermon series called Short Letters. Uh, It is based on the four one-chapter books in the New Testament. So they are Philemon, what's another one? Uh, 2 John, it's another one. Uh, 3 John, and the last one, Jude. Jude. It might surprise you to know that they are among the least read books in the Bible. Perhaps because of their length that we tend to ignore them. Falsely assuming that because they are so short that they don't have anything worthwhile to say to us. But that is, that is wrong. Today and next week we look at Philemon and it's a beautiful short letter and all the things that culturally and that time what it, what it meant and what it involved. So Philemon is Paul's shortest and most personal of his letters. It is only 25 verses long and tucked between Titus and Hebrews. So here Paul makes an appeal, a very personal appeal from the heart, sharing some tender thoughts and powerful applications about grace, about forgiveness and acceptance. Now like Ephesians, like Philippians and Colossians, Philemon was written during Paul's first imprisonment in Rome. Philemon, as the name suggests, is the recipient of the letter, the main recipient of the letter, and he was a wealthy man in the city of Colossae. Colossae is the city to whom the Apostle Paul wrote the letter to the Colossians. Now, this town was about 100 miles, 150 kilometres inland from Ephesus, which was on the west coast of modern Turkey. Ephesus today, because the sea has actually filled in or whatever it is, don't worry about climate change, Ephesus is now about 5 or 10 kilometres inland from, from the sea. Anyway, don't explain that one. So, Paul spent at least three years ministering in the city of Ephesus. It was a godless city, very difficult ministry, but very fruitful, very fruitful. Perhaps it was during his ministry there that he came into contact with Philemon and led him to Christ. And verse 19, we'll actually talk about that. Philemon probably then invited Paul to his home and then led his whole household to Christ and then a home church was established there. And it's interesting that although Paul writes the well-known epistle to the Colossians and he mentions, in that epistle, he mentions the name of Archippus and Onesimus, there is no mention of Philemon. And you would think that if, if it was a VIP in the city that he would bring him up. So because of this, some have suggested that the possibility that there were actually two churches in the city of Colossae at that particular time. That's just some of the discussion that has been going on. 
dealing with slavery. It's a very sensitive topic, but we are going to be talking about it this morning because that is the background to this, to this letter. Now, a central issue in this letter is that it addresses this, this delicate relationship between the Christian faith, between early Christianity and slavery. So being a wealthy man, Philemon owned slaves. And one of Philemon's slaves was named Onesimus. But Onesimus stole money from his master and ran away. He travelled hundreds of miles to the capital of the empire, which was Rome, where he providentially met Paul. We don't know whether he was imprisoned with Paul for a time or how they met, but it was God's doing that brought him together. And it is quite possible that Onesimus already met Paul in his master's home when Paul was, was back in, in, in Colossae. Although we know that uh, Paul didn't actually visit the city of, um, uh, the city of Colossae, although he was back in Ephesus. So it's quite likely as well that um, his master brought, brought the message back to Colossae after his conversion and therefore the whole of the household um, became, became Christian. And so it is quite possible that Onesimus had heard about the Apostle Paul. Now whether they met physically or just by, by, by word of mouth is, is another matter. But certainly by the time that Onesimus got to Rome that they physically met. Now when this happened, they formed a close relationship as Onesimus served Paul while in prison. Problem is that Paul now had a converted runaway slave in his hands. What should he do? All he could do is disciple him in God's word. In time, as Onesimus grew in the faith through Paul's teaching, he realised that he needed to return to his master and make amends for the wrong that he had done. It was a very delicate situation. And Paul didn't want him to return empty-handed. Paul wanted to make sure that Philemon understood what had happened, that this is the case of a prodigal, isn't it? That a prodigal who ran away is different to the one that was returning home. And that is why he wrote this short letter that Onesimus was going to take with him when he appeared back in his master's home or household. Now, we need to know something about slavery in the first century. Although slavery was occasionally practised in Israel, it was never widespread and was carefully regulated by the Old Testament law. One, uh, for example, one could uh, sell themselves for a period for financial reasons. They could sell themselves to settle an outstanding debt. They could sell themselves as a slave, but it was limited for a certain amount of time. By contrast, the Roman Empire was built on slave labour. In Paul's day, slavery had virtually eclipsed free labour. And every time 
what happened was that every time that the Romans conquered a new province, they added new slaves to the empire. And most of their conquests were in Europe and around Syria, Palestine and northern Africa. This means that the majority of slaves were white or olive skin, while blacks were in the minority. In other words, the ancient institution of slavery did not discriminate on the basis of colour, but it did discriminate on the basis of status, whether you were a slave or free, or whether you were, in case of the Jews, whether you were a Jew or a Gentile. Scholars tell us that in the days of the Apostle Paul, that up to half the population, about six million, were slaves in the Roman Empire. Up to half the population. So if this was, if we were living in that time, 2,000 years ago, half of you will be slaves and half of you would be free. We need to talk about the bad side of slavery, the bad side. Roman law provided little protection for slaves because they were regarded as property not as people. It would not have been unusual for a rich man to own as many as 10,000 slaves. That was how you measured your wealth, how many servants, how many slaves you had. And owners could mistreat their slaves and even kill them with little or no legal ramification. Especially runaway slaves like Onesimus were often put to death as a warning to others. Don't you get any ideas now? Some three years before Paul wrote this letter to Philemon, a slave had killed his master, who was a Roman senator. The law demanded that when this happened, all of the slaves in the household will be executed along with the one who did it. The senator had 400 slaves. And the public, when they became aware of this, they they tried to intervene to save the rest of the slaves from this unjust treatment. And then the Roman senate held a special hearing and decided that the law needed to be carried out and all 400 slaves were executed through no fault of their own. That was a very powerful warning about who was boss. Now, that's the bad side of slavery. We will now look at the better side of slavery. The masters that treated their slaves well found that they were more productive. So there was benefit to having, you know, taking care of your your servants and slaves. So it was not uncommon for a master to provide well for their slaves, to give them food and and, and, and lodging and, and, and take good care of them. But also, more than that, it was to teach their slave his own trade. And some masters and slaves became close friends because they were part of the household. And even in the Old Testament, there, 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 are, there were regulations that if a particular slave, when it came to the time for him to be released, and the master said, look, you can go now. I've preached on this before. And the slave said, no, I love my master. I want to stay here. 
that the that the the master would actually take the slave to the town square and, and in an act of symbolism actually um, nail his the earlobe to the to the doorpost as as a symbol as a symbol of the fact that he wanted he didn't want to be released he wanted to be part of that household forever and it's it's a wonderful illustration uh, an example of what it means to be once we belong to Jesus, that he owns us, he is our master, and we belong to him, we serve him. Now, slaves, they could be doctors, they could be musicians, they could be teachers, they could be artists, librarians, accountants. In short, almost all the jobs could be and were filled by slaves. It also became more common for slaves to be granted or to purchase their own freedom. So there is a better side to the whole institution of slavery. And let's not forget that at a time before we had Centrelink and pensions and uh, JobKeeper, uh job seeker and all that stuff, uh, that being part of a household was part of your social security. It provided the minimum care that you needed, food, lodging, clothing, care. And and so your whole family were then brought up in a secure environment. Therefore, some slaves were actually better off as part of a large household because of this, while many of those who were free lived in poverty and insecurity for most of their lives. And this is, this is the, the dilemma. It's, I know it's hard perhaps for us to understand that, but that's what it was like 2,000 years ago. Now what about the Christian side to this? So we looked at the bad side, the better side, and the Christian side. It may be asked, why was Paul now sending Onesimus, a slave, back to Philemon, the master? How could he do that? Isn't slavery wrong in the eyes of God? And questions like this have, have troubled Christians for, for many centuries. We find ourselves... 2,000 years removed from that situation. But the short answer, I suppose, that is a complicated answer, but the short answer is that it was so commonplace, it was so accepted that no one thought seriously to oppose it. The early church, like I said before, the early church grew amongst both slaves and free. And to have done, to have opposed it outrightly would have required a tremendous upheaval and revolution which the rest of society simply was not prepared for. And this is why the Apostle Paul wrote to the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 5. This is what he said to them. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart just as you would obey Christ. Something that's not said there is, when you get the chance, make sure that you run away. Right? 
doesn't say that. Say, stay there, obey your masters with respect and fear, sincerely, because as you serve your master, as you serve your boss, that's the application for nowadays, I hate my boss. No. Why? Because you're actually obeying a higher boss, a higher authority, Christ himself, just as you would obey Christ. That's the motivation, isn't it? But Paul and others were not afraid to also exhort the slave owners in the church. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 9, this is what he said. Just a couple of verses after, he said, And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. He would treat everybody the same. Now, even though the New Testament never directly attacks the institution of slavery, it certainly does set the roadmap for the change that would happen some 1,800 years later. Long time, I know. And as one of the scholars, F.F. Bruce, pointed out, what this epistle does is to bring us into an atmosphere in which the institution could not only wilt, but will eventually die. The true Christian faith seeks to reform by love and not by force. And those who were deeply involved in the abolition of slavery were very committed Christians. In fact, the abolition actually started within the church in the 1800s and Wilberforce and others, William Pitt and others, were quite involved, even though, as I've said before, William Pitt, the Prime Minister in England at the time, was not a a believer But it was the Christians who led the way to abolish it. Now let's look at our text. That's a rather long introduction, isn't it? But I needed to set the context so that we understand what is behind this beautiful short letter. And we're going to, this morning we're just going to look at the first seven verses and then next week we'll bring it more together and and more application as as we conclude this, this letter, God willing. So first of all, as as a Christian, and and Philemon was certainly a Christian, what what, what are some of the things that, as a Christian, for all ages, whether you're living 2,000 years ago or you're living one today, what is it that God expects us? And a lot of it, well, all of it really has to do with the calling. We are called in different situations in life, uh, we, some of us are, are going to be poor, some of us are going to be rich, some of us are going to be highly educated, others are not. It doesn't, it, whatever situation you, you find yourself in, we need to understand our calling. And so, this is what uh, in verses 1 to 3 is about, the calling. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother. To Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker, also to Aphia, our sister in Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your home. Grace and peace to you from God our Father 
and the Lord Jesus Christ. And notice how Paul describes himself as a prisoner of Christ Jesus. He doesn't call himself a prisoner of the Roman government or of the Emperor Nero. He knew he wasn't in chains as a result of some terrible injustice, which it was, which it was. No, it was actually because of someone higher than the Jewish authorities who eventually sent him all the way to Rome because he appealed to Rome. Higher than the provincial governors that the book of Acts tells us about. Higher than the emperor himself. It was God who had placed him in Rome for a special time, for a special ministry. And this is what he wrote to the Philippians in Philippians chapter 1, verse 12. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. I wonder if we can all, in the same heart, in the same spirit, in the same spirit of our calling, confront every situation and take every situation with the same attitude. As you're lying there in a hospital, not knowing what's going to happen, I just want everybody to know that, yeah, they're about to amputate this or that and say whatever it is that it's for the glory of God. Yeah, I've just lost... A loved one. Um, you, you see? Because whatever our circumstances, if we understand that our calling is higher, what our, our circumstances, whatever it is, there's no accident with God because God is sovereign over all. That whatever situation we face, if, as long as we recognise that behind it all, ultimately, yes, it could be, we could be going through injustice and evil and persecution and so many other circumstances, if we can understand that nothing escapes God's sovereignty, if we can understand that and say, it is for the glory of God that I'm going through this, then that changes our attitude, doesn't it? God can and often does use various ways to accomplish his purposes through his people. He's, every, he's got every tool in his toolbox. And he uses them. And you are probably asking, how can you possibly advance the gospel from jail? Well, he wrote at least four epistles from jail, and most of the New Testament is actually is a witness to ministry in persecution, in exile, as in the case of John, and in jail in the case of Paul and others. Therefore, We should not expect his calling on our lives to be a bed of roses, especially after he gave his own son a crown of thorns. So don't fall, don't fall for these highfalutin preachers and whatever show they put on. He says, you deserve better. It's your best life now. Don't fall for that. It's rubbish. Yes, God can and does and often blesses beyond what 
possibly imagine. But when he takes away those blessings, as he did to Job, what will you say? What if I'm about to tell you that the days that are ahead of us in Australia and the rest of the world are going to be hard? We've got difficult days ahead of us, my brothers and sisters. I'm not not making this stuff up. Where will your faith stand? The great thing is that we're not alone. God is with us. He understands. Not only that, but God sends others brothers and sisters, to help us, to encourage us, to bless us in our distress. The Apostle Paul had young Timothy and before he was sending Onesimus back home, he had Onesimus next to him. His pro- Timothy was his protege, he there helping him in this Roman prison and distributing letters and getting word here or there. And, 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 and as Timothy was watching this, his elder uh, teacher Paul, he was watching and learning not just what he wrote and what he what he said, but he was actually watching his life. And Timothy then will go and implement in his own life this life, this way of living. This is what the cost of serving Christ would mean. And our Christian life was never meant to be lived in isolation. Yes, I know we are social distancing now. But too many Christians, even when there is no restrictions, prefer to live their Christian life in isolation from the rest of the church. This is not the way we are meant to live. We are meant to live in community. It's part of a fellowship. And it was up to the entire church to welcome back this runaway slave not as a second-class citizen, but as a beloved brother in Christ. That's why Paul wrote this letter. That's why Paul not only addressed this letter to Philemon, but also to Athea, his wife, to Archippus. Perhaps Archippus was the pastor of the church. And the entire church that gathered in Philemon's home. Because it was up to everybody to accept Onesimus, as a brother. Because the matter of forgiving Onesimus and accepting him was a corporate testimony. It was an opportunity for God to be glorified and for the gospel to spread in that city. And it was a, an opportunity to sow the seed for the way in which Christians and slaves and forgiveness Reconciliation is supposed to happen. Godly relationships in our homes and in the church glorify God and demonstrate the reality of the gospel in our lives. The fact that we have this letter of Philemon is, again, it's God's gift to us, isn't it? It's proof of the genuine nature of Onesimus' conversion, that it was a genuine conversion. 
If he had been a false convert, he would have, you know, taken off for some other place or hiding away and never returned to Philemon. The letter that he was carrying with him with the Apostle Paul, they said, ha ha, I'm gone now. No, the fact that this letter survived and it circulated, it tells us about God's providence, doesn't it? And nowhere more than in this situation would the greeting, this is much more than just a greeting, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ be more real. Such a volatile situation, it could have exploded, a powder keg. And yet, it says grace and peace to you. Paul wanted Philemon, his wife, the entire church to be a forgiving community. Mercy to triumph over justice. The ministry of reconciliation that happened all the way back in Rome with, under Paul, the ministry of reconciliation continued with the church in Colossae under Philemon. This is the continuation, you see. That's the beauty of it. So we look at the calling and now in verses 4 to 7 we look at the character. Verses 4 to 7. I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers because I hear about your love for all his people and your faith in the Lord Jesus. I pray that your partnership with us in the faith may be effective in deepening your understanding of every good thing we share for the sake of Christ. Your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, and I love this, have refreshed the hearts of the Lord's people. We know that at times has been, the Apostle Paul has unjustly been accused as being a bit legalistic, a bit harsh, a bit insensitive, misogynistic and the rest of the other stuff. But this letter oozes with Paul's gentleness, sensitivity, love. He commends the Philemon he knows for his godly character. Philemon, a rich, wealthy, powerful person in the city of Colossae. And we know how rich and powerful strut about. We know how they carry on. Even more so in poorer countries. But Philemon, instead of letting his wealth and his power get to his head, he used it to further the gospel. And then the word is used there, I pray that your partnership with us in the faith, that means that in one way or another, he was actually supporting Paul Financially, we can assume, supporting Paul financially in his mission. That's what partnership is. And and because this pastoral situation could explode if handled incorrectly, he appeals to his godly Christian character. I know that you're going to do the right thing, Philemon, is what he's saying. Thomas, the American Thomas Paine, a couple of hundred years ago, he, he said this, character is much better kept than recovered. Character 
is much better kept than recovered. So Paul commends him in a loving, gracious manner, describing his own heart has come to have much joy and comfort in Philemon's love, in a demonstration of his love. As a matter of fact, the very name Philemon actually means loving or affectionate. That's a good name for a master, isn't it? Master is loving and affectionate. Not a tyrant. I think this is the way he lived his life, from all evidence. Now, it's great to see the old Apostle Paul pray while locked up, awaiting his trial. He didn't know what was going to happen. And adverse situations, all the, the worries of all the other churches and all these situations that emerge, they, they weren't able to quash his pastoral heart, his care. He could have been complaining about the injustice of it all. No, he decides to highlight every good thing that is shared in our daily experiences for the sake of Christ. He gives thanks for their faith, for a maturing, a deepening of their faith in Christ. And Paul himself, he was blessed, he was encouraged, he, he, he brought him joy when he thought about Philemon, how he refreshed the hearts of God's people. Now that word refresh means, a, a, only a, it's a couple of times in the New Testament, it means to, to break from labour or to give rest, to take a break. We use the term sometimes uh, after a break or during a break or a holiday, we sometimes ask people, how are you going? You know, How's your holidays? And the response is, I feel refreshed. I needed that break. While there are people and there are situations which will suck the life out of you, right? there are others who will fill you up refresh you, talk to them, hear their stories, they come alongside of you like a cool drink on a hot day. What a blessing, what a blessing they are. That was Philemon, my friends. And this is the effect that Philemon was having on God's people. What a wonderful prayer it would be if we were refreshing people. Encouraging, building up. When people are in trouble or indeed under the weather, that we can offer them refreshing encouragement. At times we might get the wrong impression that perhaps God is too busy to have time for domestic tribulations that we all have, the, under, the little things in life that can sometimes build to bigger things. No, I'm not going to trouble God with, with that. I just have to endure it. And I think part of the beauty of Philemon is that it gives us a strong evidence to the contrary, that God is actually, in every circumstance, God 
is there. And, and how suddenly um, some of the big doctrines of the Christian faith, we find them so dry and boring. Oh, there he goes again, talking about this doctrine and that doctrine, that theology. We say, well, it's not just doctrine. This is, this is where he hits the road, you see, because doctrines such as the love of God, forgiveness, uh, grace, uh, the inherent dignity of, of every human being, this is where it all comes together. This is how it is applied. This is what it means. And this is what it should mean to all of us. Every walk of life impacted by the gospel. Let me finish with a story. Some years ago, a church in England was having a combined communion service with uh, one of its mission churches. Uh, the pastor noticed from the front that a former burglar was kneeling at the communion rail because that's how you took communion. There was a, a rail in the front that you kneel and uh, took uh, communion. And so the pastor noticed that a former burglar was kneeling at the communion rail beside a judge of the Supreme Court of England. The very judge who years before had sentenced that burglar to seven years in prison. Think about it. After his release, the burglar had been converted to Christ and became a Christian worker. That's heavy, guys. That's heavy. Now, after the service... As the judge and the pastor, they were walking home together. After the service, as the judge and pastor walked home together, the judge asked, did you see who was kneeling beside me at the communion rail? Yes, replied the pastor, but I didn't know that you noticed. And the two men walked in silence for a few moments and then the judge said, what a miracle of grace. The pastor agreed. Yes, what a marvellous miracle of grace. And then the judge said, but to whom do you refer? Who are you talking about? And the pastor replied, why the conversion of the convict? The, of course. And, and the judge said, but I wasn't referring to him. I was thinking of myself. Hmm. What do you mean, the pastor asked? And the judge replied, and he said, that burglar knew how much he needed Christ to save him from his sins. But look at me. I was taught from childhood to live as a gentleman, to keep my word, to say my prayers, to go to church. I went through Oxford, took my degrees, was called to the bar and eventually became a judge. Pastor, he said, Nothing but the grace of God could have caused me to admit that I was a sinner on the same level with that burglar. It took much more grace to forgive me for all my pride and self-righteousness. To get me to admit that I was no better in the eyes of God than a convict whom I had sent to prison. Powerful, isn't it? Folks, there's a lot of good people in hell. 
And there's a lot of criminals in heaven. But none of those who are in heaven will be there unless it was other than the grace of Christ. His sacrifice on the cross. The the repentance, the recognition of their own brokenness. Whether you're a, a president, a judge or a criminal. We all need the grace of God. And sometimes it's the fact that our own goodness, our own self-righteousness can keep us away from the kingdom, the kingdom of our own making. I don't need to be accountable to anybody. Philemon was a powerful man, a rich man. He didn't need to listen to this, but he did. But he did. I hope and pray that we all recognise our brokenness before Christ. That there are many runaway slaves, slaves to sin in our world. And they're running away from Christ. And they're running away by going to pleasures and the drink and fulfilling their own desires. If you are one of them, whether you're here or whether you're listening online, it's time to come to recognise your own sinfulness, repent and submit to Christ. He came to save sinners. He didn't come to save good people. We're all sinners. Come to him and find freedom, the real freedom in Christ. May God bless us.